0: On April 15th, 1912, the British passenger liner RMS Titanic sank in the North Atlantic on its maiden voyage, taking with her over 1,500 people. The ship had been designed and promoted to be virtually unsinkable the very definition of human ingenuity triumphing over the unpredictable dangers of the ocean. That's what they said. But sadly, this was not the case. Even the best efforts of human shipbuilding could, in fact, be stopped by natural elements. If you fast forward to the winter of 1980... The Soviet hockey team prepared to crush all other nations and win gold in the Winter Olympics as they had already done for the previous four Olympics. And up until that point, no nation had even come close to matching the speed or the skill or the teamwork of the Soviets who dominated team after team after team that they played. But on February 22nd, in the medal round, a young, comparatively inexperienced U.S. team shocked the world by defeating the Soviets 4-3. The team that had thought to be unbeatable, had thought to be unstoppable, had been the product of the best scientific and sports exercise sciences that the Soviet Union could possibly put together, was in fact stopped and was in fact In the 1940s, going back in time now again, a pilot and aircraft designer by the name of Howard Hughes conceived of a revolutionary airplane, which would be one of the largest in the world, which would change the face of World War II. Made entirely of wood, this plane called the Spruce Goose was the product of every single scientific advancement that could be put into an airplane. It was the product of the best and the brightest engineering minds in North America pulling together to work together to create this revolutionary airplane, this revolutionary wooden float plane. However, it came to fruition far too late. In fact, three and a half years after, or two and a half years after the end of World War II, and it only flew once, barely leaving the ground for a mere 26 seconds. This icon of ingenuity and the mastery of human minds to be able to determine their fate and to be able to be unstoppable was, in fact, stopped, did, in fact, fail. Let me give you one more example. This one is maybe a bit more trivial, but you'll make the same point. In 1963, a company called Coppertone introduced a new product which was the culmination of the best scientific advances in which they said would revolutionize the world of tanning. This new product called QT for quick tan was said to give its user a luster that looked so deep and so natural, it would virtually eliminate the need for natural tanning in the sun. The height of the engineering world creating fake tanning lotion. If you're thinking, I don't remember seeing QT at Target on the shelves, it's because the product didn't last very long. When the first version of QT failed, it went through several quick product enhancements in short succession, but eventually was pulled from the shelves because they could not find a way to prevent its users from looking orange, which is a problem. The best plans, the most brilliant minds to create this one product were stopped. Their product failed. What all four of these examples have in common is the reality that our best laid plans can come to nothing. Our best designs, our hopes and dreams, the things that we think are so unstoppable can in fact be stopped. Our goals, our lofty aspirations can vanish like fog in the morning. Which may be why we as humans are drawn, aren't we, to stories of things and people who accomplish exactly what they set out to do. It's appealing to us because we know just how unlikely that actually is. Especially with all the odds stacked against us. We love stories of those who, like Cinderella, have no chance, or so it seems. And yet in the end are not stopped in the end, actually achieve what they set out to do. I mean, let's face it. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings would not be half as appealing if Frodo took his inherited ring on a peaceful and joyous journey back to Mount Doom, whereby he destroyed it without resistance. Who wants to read a book like that? The appeal of Lord of the Rings is the struggle. It is the fact that the mission to destroy the ring was fraught with danger, and yet against all odds, his plan succeeded. But even for Frodo, victory was not assured. Frodo could have just as easily been killed. He could have just as easily lost the ring. You see, we as humans tend to think, don't we, that if we plan well enough, if we utilize the best sciences and technology available, then we can guarantee success. But that is simply not the case. And how many of your plans have turned out exactly as you expected? Probably not a lot. In fact, if you're like most of us, your story involves lots of changed plans and lots of redirections because of things outside your control. It's good for us to stop and just to think about that this morning because in our pride, we tend to think that we are more in control and more unstoppable than we really are. Sometimes when we have failures and setbacks, we respond to those as though they were somehow foreign to the human existence, something strange that has come upon us because we're just unique. Maybe we're not as gifted as everyone else. Maybe we just have worse luck than everyone else. Maybe we just have bad things happen to us that no one else does. But no human has all of their plans turn into reality. All of us go through life with unmet expectations and roadblocks which require change. But not God. This is in fact one of the many ways that God is not like us. Or maybe we should say we are not like God. God's purposes are not stopped. God's plans are not God never has to step back and say, wait, let me process this and come at it from a different direction. He never does that. His designs do not require readjustment. And that is because the purposes of God are unfailing. And we see that in our text this morning. So as our text opens in verse 31, Jesus is slowly journeying towards the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital city. And he knows that he will go there to surrender his life. In fact, he knows that his whole life and his whole ministry has been building to the great crescendo when he will willingly lay down his life and die in the place of all who believe. But there's a problem in our text, actually, there are a few problems, a few attempted roadblocks. And yet, as we will see, the purposes of God in Jesus Christ are not stopped. Notice first, in our text, God's purposes will not be stopped by intimidation from the Pharisees. God's purposes will not be stopped by intimidation from From the Pharisees. Verse 31. At that very hour, some of the Pharisees came to him and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, before we get to the actual danger from Herod, notice what the Pharisees are doing here. Remember, by this time in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees' goal is to discredit Jesus. Right? The Pharisees are not the fan club of Jesus the Christ. Their priority is to silence Jesus. Jesus' popularity is on the rise. The influence of the Pharisees is slipping. So they are antagonistic towards Jesus, which might make us think, well, why in the world are they telling Jesus about this danger? Like, this is a nice thing for someone to do. Hey, there's danger. Maybe you ought to leave. Why in the world are the Pharisees telling Jesus about this danger? Well, one option been put forward by some is that Herod really didn't intend to kill Jesus. This was just made up by the Pharisees. They contrived of this to scare Jesus when Herod didn't have plans to kill Jesus. But that does not seem likely given the way Jesus responds in verses 32 and 33, where he seems to identify the fact that Herod is a fairly evil leader. It's not surprising then that Herod would want to kill Jesus. What's more likely is the fact that just like Herod killed John the Baptist because he didn't like John's message, he now wanted to kill Jesus for the same reason. And somewhere along the way, in the game of telephone, the wishes of Herod came to the ears of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were all too glad to go and tell Jesus about this risk, about this danger, in hopes that it would stop him. That he would stop preaching, that he would just shut up. Go away. There could be something else happening here as well. If we look at this text in light of the Old Testament, we see that there's a pattern in the Old Testament whereby prophets and godly leaders are warned to hide from a danger But that warning to hide is just an intimidation to get them to stop prophesying and to stop leading and to stop teaching. It's an attempt to scare them so that they will hide. And so that their enemies, the ones doing the intimidation, can say, look, see, they're not really a prophet. They took off and ran when things got tough. They went and hid. And this happened when Amaziah, the priest, tells Amos to leave Bethel. In Amos chapter 7, it's all just an attempt to silence him, to intimidate him. This happened in Nehemiah chapter 6 when Shemiah tells Nehemiah to go hide in the temple because there are enemies coming to kill him. Shemiah and his band of kind of worthless fellows are just trying to get Nehemiah to stop rebuilding the wall. And it appears to be happening here in our text this morning. It appears that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to either stop teaching and hide or to go away and run somewhere else. But either way, they win. Either way, they silence and they discredit Jesus as a fake. See, when the going got tough, he got up and got going. He left. Trying to intimidate Jesus. But God's purposes will not be stopped by intimidation from the Pharisees. Second thing we see in our text is that God's purposes will not be stopped by danger from Herod. Look at verse 32, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and that day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus is not intimidated by the Pharisees. He's not stopped by the risk, by danger from Herod, but instead responds to these threats from Herod. Notice he calls Herod a fox. That's not commenting on the way he looks, by the way. And it's not even commenting on the fact that he's crafty or devious. If we look at the Old Testament in texts like Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, this imagery of a fox is used to, to indicate someone who is insignificant and weightless. What Jesus is saying is, okay, Herod can scheme and Herod can plot and Herod can make threats, but all of that is small compared to the purposes and the plans of God. Like, Herod Herod will not stop me. Herod will not stop God. Herod is insignificant and weightless compared to the plans and the purposes of God. Notice also, Jesus does not pander to the political leadership of his day. I mean, it's likely that he knew, as he is responding to these Pharisees, that just like tattletales on the playground, they're going to be quick to run back to Herod and tell Herod, hey, guess what? Jesus called you. Guess what Jesus said about you? And yet Jesus is not intimidated and Jesus is not stopped. He doesn't fear political authorities. He knows who he is. He knows where he has come from and he knows what he is sent to do. In fact, you can see from verse 33 that he knows that he will die in Jerusalem. Which oddly enough is under Pilate's jurisdiction, not Herod's. And because he knows the plans of God always succeed, he knows that Herod will not be successful. So he says, I'm going to continue my ministry of casting out demons and healing the sick until my course is finished. In fact, that's what Jesus is referencing in these statements about the days that you see in verses 32 and 33. Notice verse 32, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. We see that three day progression as well in verse 33. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. Like the point here is that Jesus will finish his course. There is a set period of time which has been prescribed by the Father for Jesus to fulfill his mission, and Jesus will be faithful to finish it. And no intimidation from the Pharisees will stop him, and no threats from wicked King Herod will stop him. He will finish his mission. Which is why the days here isn't necessarily referring to three literal days, because we know three days after Jesus said this was not when he was crucified or was not when he rose from the dead. So This refers, it's, it's figurative, it refers to the fact that there is a limited time. There's a set definite time In which Jesus will work, and then his work will be finished. In fact, you remember Jesus' words even as he hung on the cross, and he said, It is what? Finished. Finished. No one will stop him, no one will thwart his plans, no one will cause him to deviate and make an end run and go audible and try something different. Jesus also notes the irony that true prophets are killed in Jerusalem. Again, this doesn't mean that no prophet was ever killed anywhere else. In fact, John the Baptist was likely killed outside of Jerusalem at Herod's palace. That statement is full of irony that that no prophet perishes apart from Jerusalem. If you know much of your Old Testament, you know that most of the Old Testament prophets were killed at the hands of Jewish people, not at the hands of foreign enemies. So he knows that he is going to Jerusalem, and he knows why he is going to Jerusalem, and he knows what will happen when he goes to Jerusalem. So never let anyone convince you that Jesus was just a victim of a cruel society and an evil government and oppression from those in power. Jesus chose to willingly go to Jerusalem He chose to willingly go to the cross. He chose to willingly surrender himself, even as he told those as he was being arrested, don't you think I could call down like a legion of angels, legions of angels, and they could free me and they could could overthrow the best that the Romans have to offer? It's why Jesus chose to come to earth. That's why he chose to lay down his life. No one took it from him. And so he knows he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows what will happen there. True prophets go to Jerusalem. They preach and communicate the message of God in Jerusalem, and they die in Jerusalem. Once again, the purposes of God are unfailing. God's plan will not be stopped. He will reach his intended end. No political leader, no angry group of Pharisees can stop him. Herod's threats mean nothing. Instead, Jesus is focused on fulfilling what the Father has given to him to do. Third thing to notice in our text, God's purposes will not be stopped by the unbelief of the Jews. Look at verse 34. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem would have been angry with Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the capital city. It's the city of David. It's the city of the temple. It was a representation of the entire nation of Israel. And by now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, the Israelites were generally, by and large, unbelieving. They don't believe Jesus. They don't take to heart the things that he said. They don't repent and turn towards him. And so we wouldn't be surprised if Jesus, at this point, would have been irritated. But that's not the scene here. It's not the scene at all. Instead, Jesus is heartbroken. Jesus mourns. Jesus laments. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. These are not angry words. These are words that come from a grieving heart. We see the humanity of Jesus as he mourns those who in their hard-heartedness reject him. The very ones that he has sent, that he has, has come to preach to, to teach to, to heal their sick, to raise their dead are the very ones that reject him. Jerusalem had a long history of killing the very prophets sent to warn her of coming judgment. In fact, time and time again they killed the prophets. They were the wicked tenants in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, who every time the owner of the vineyard sent another messenger to them, they would kill that messenger. Until finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my own son. And the wicked tenants gather together and say, look, this is his heir. Let's kill him too. And very soon the people of Jerusalem will gather together and they will kill the very son of the owner of the vineyard, the very son of God. And so Jesus looks down the road to Jerusalem to come and he mourns. He mourns that the very people who should have recognized him first would reject him again. And he longs to gather them together, but they were unwilling We see the compassion of Christ here, don't we? A 19th century British pastor, J.C. Ryle, I think I've quoted him before maybe, <laughs> said, let us learn for another thing from these verses, how great is the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ towards sinners. We see his This brought out in a most forcible manner by our Lord's language about Jerusalem. He knew well the wickedness of the city. He knew what crimes had been committed there in times past. And he knew what was coming on himself at the time of his crucifixion. Yet even to Jerusalem, he says, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings and ye would not. Jerusalem failed to accept him. According to verse 35, their house will be forsaken, and the temple will be destroyed, and God's blessing and protection would be removed, ultimately leading towards judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70 A.D. Again, to go back to the parable of the tenants, after the the wicked tenants kill the very son of the owner of the vineyard, what does the owner do? He casts out the wicked tenants, and he gives the vineyard to other tenants. There are others who are grafted in to the vine. And most tragically, the people of Jerusalem will not see their Messiah again until he returns in glory. God's purposes will not be stopped, even as he mourns and grieves the hardness of heart of the very people that he has come to minister to. Now, there's something else in Jesus' response here in verses 34 and 35 that I think it's important for us to see. This is sort of an aside, but I, I think this helps bolster our understanding of Jesus' identity, and it helps provide a stronger foundation. When people try to tell us that Jesus didn't really understand that he was the Messiah. Jesus never thought that he was divine. He never, he never claimed that. Because in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh who gathers together his people and restores them. And we see that over and over again in the Old Testament. In fact, in passages like Psalm 106 and Psalm 147 and Isaiah 52 and Jeremiah 31 and Zechariah chapter 2. We see this imagery over and over again that it is ultimately Yahweh. It is not the king, it's not the prophets, it's not the princes, it's not the judges. It is Yahweh who gathers together his people and restores them. But here we have Jesus claiming to do the work that in the Old Testament only Yahweh was to do, which is to gather together and to restore his people. Jesus is claiming to fulfill the covenantal promises that Yahweh has made to the nation. He is comparing himself with Yahweh. He is doing the work that Yahweh does. He is saying that the way that God saves Israel is by gathering Israel under his wings. So Jesus is telling any of us who will listen that he is God, that he is divine that he is giving the same call and fulfilling the same promises that God gave to Old Testament Israel all those generations ago. Jesus clearly knew not only that he would go to Jerusalem and die, but that he that he was the Son of God. That he is the Son of God. So as we Think about how this text applies to our lives and we see the unstoppable purposes of God over and over and over again in Scripture. This is, a, this is a, an important reminder, isn't it, that our lives and our times are in God's hands. Like Jesus is not afraid of Herod's threats. He's not afraid of the intimidation from the Pharisees because he knows that his life belongs to God completely. And so he rests in the sovereignty of God, knowing that God's plans cannot be stopped. And brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and reconciliation with the God who made you, then the Bible says that you are in Christ, that the promises of Scripture are yours through Christ Jesus, which means that we have that same hope. We have that same promise that our times are in God's hands. We are faced with all kinds of uncertainty in our world, all kinds of ups and downs, all kinds of unforeseen things that change our plans, that stop our best designs, that alter our hopes and our dreams and our goals. But we can be confident that if we are in Christ, our times are in God's hands, that nothing comes into our life apart from the sovereign hand of God. And he will accomplish his purposes in and through us. In fact, David, the Old Testament king of Israel, would be led of the Lord to write this in Psalm 31. Even perhaps as he is being hunted down and killed by the king's army. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant and save me in your steadfast love. And this is David, right? David is no stranger to trials and suffering, just as we are no strangers to trials and suffering as well. And yet he writes confidently that his times are in the Lord's hands. And he must have believed that so strongly that that Truth is actually passed down to his son Solomon, who would write something similar in Proverbs 16 9 when he says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Like we can plan, we can purpose, we can dream, we can strategize, but in the end it is the purposes of God that will remain. The stock market may be unsteady. Inflation may continue. War may rage. And even within our own homes, money may be tight. Health may be poor. Relationships may be strained. Loneliness may be stifling. But friends, our times are in the Lord's hands. we We can rest in that. That he cares for us. It does not mean that we will not Encounter trials. Remember a few weeks ago, we are called to walk the narrow road. There are ups and downs on the narrow road and sometimes there are rocks and roots and washed out bridges in the narrow road. But God has promised us, even as Pastor Nick referenced Romans 8 earlier this morning, God has promised us according to Romans 8 that for those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes, he works all things for good. And we know Romans 8:28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. This is a promise from God. Not for everyone. This is not a promise made to everyone. This is a promise made to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And we can be confident that whatever trials we are experiencing, whatever adversities we are struggling with, whatever storms may be buffeting our lives. God is working even that for our eternal good and his eternal glory. It may mean we suffer in this life now. It may mean we die physically in this life now. But he is working all things according to his purposes for his eternal plan For His glory and for our eternal good, which is a really good place to to land, because we don't know what will happen tomorrow, we don't know what will happen next year, we don't know what our health will be like, or our relationships will be like, or our vocation or our location will be like in six months, or in one month, or in three weeks. We make our plans, we dream, we strategize, and all of that's good. But like the designers of the Spruce Goose, we can lay whatever we want in place and it can fail. Ultimately, we are so powerless to guarantee that our plans will succeed. But there is one thing we can be absolutely sure of. Come what may, we belong to the Lord. He's still working on us to make us what he wants us to be. he will use us and he will accomplish his purposes in and through us. And then we will spend eternity with him because his plans will not, cannot be stopped. I love the way our friend J.C. Ryle wrote it. How many of our cares and fears are about things which never come to pass. We could just park there for a minute and like set up a tent and hang out all week on that phrase which we don't have time for. Happy is that man or that woman who can walk in our Lord's steps and say, I shall have what is good for me. I shall live on earth till my work is done and not a moment longer. I shall be taken when I am ripe for heaven and not a minute before. All the powers of the world cannot take my life until God permits and all the physicians of earth cannot preserve it when God calls me away Like that there is peace there isn't there like we can live without fear because when it comes down to it we are pretty stoppable our best laid plans fail so many of our hopes and dreams never come true but we belong to an unstoppable God who has promised to return one day to judge sinners, to save saints, and to bring to reality our glorious inheritance, which is an eternity with him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.